Uh, today we're going to continue in our, I called it our supplemental sermon series. I thought that was pretty crafty. Supplemental sermon series through the, through the book of James. Pastor Joe has been walking us through the book of Exodus, but we are going to continue looking through the book of James uh, with one another together today. Uh, this is my fourth sermon on James. And today we're considering chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Our Old Testament reading today will come from Exodus 24, uh, 39. And this is a a portion of scripture that uh, you are, or I'm sorry, 24, 3 through 9, uh, which is a portion of scripture which you should be very familiar with because Pastor Joe preached on this sermon text only a few weeks ago. So hopefully you remember some of the points that I'll be referencing uh, in the message today. The New Testament reading, which will also be our sermon text today, will come from James 1, 19 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word as we read the Old Testament passage, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 9. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the rules. And the people answered with one voice, and they said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men from the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it into basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Moving now to the New Testament, James 1. 19 through 25. Here again, the reading of God's most holy word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths contained within. I pray that you would open up hearts and minds, Lord, to hear and to understand with great application, as James has before us, the teaching of actually doing the things that you tell us in your word. And so I pray that those who lack understanding will gain it. I pray those who gain this understanding will have the ability, the wisdom, and the courage even to carry out the things that your word commands us to do. So prepare hearts and minds now as we come before you and we offer to you our attention in the hearing and the preaching of your most holy word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Church, our thoughts, the thoughts that you have every day, They have consequences. The things that you fill in your minds will eventually spill over into your actions. None are immune from this simple truth, for it is a biblical concept that Jesus directly teaches in Scripture. He actually teaches this multiple places in Scripture. But in setting the context for today, and in setting the proper backdrop for our sermon text, I want to read to you, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and, and make some commentary on this verse as we go through. So, Matthew 6, 19 through 24. If you want to turn there, I'm going to be reading directly. Most of my uh, verses come from the ESV too, by the way. And listen carefully. Again, this is taught in multiple places in Scripture. 
But James 19 through 24 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Basically, Christ is teaching on one's priorities in this life. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. There is a a biblical theology about the the teaching of the heart, and we have to understand that if we're to understand human behavior, if we're to understand actions, or if we're to understand motivation, um, essentially to understand anything about humans in general in Scripture, we must understand this teaching on the heart because we're not going to get this teaching anywhere else. Psychology doesn't give it. Sociology doesn't give it. Anthropology doesn't give it. Scripture alone teaches on the heart. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, there's a way that stuff gets into our minds and and through that into our hearts. Something cannot get into your brain if it is not through one of your senses. You have to see something, focusing on it. You have to hear it. Your senses have to allow it in too. And the scripture is saying the eye is the way for this, is, is the vessel in which information comes into uh, the mind of man and therefore into the heart of man. And then listen very carefully. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or some translations say mammon. In other words, whatever goes into your mind goes into your heart, and your heart is only able to have enough room for one person on that throne. It's a very biblical teaching, and all of us always have someone on the throne. This is why uh, Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is always teaching to us in a way of loyalties, right? Where is your loyalty truly lie? There's only two people. You serve God or you serve yourself. You serve God or you serve the world. There's no in-between. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this verse. It's a very common verse from the Beatitudes. But I wanted to specifically begin today by explaining this uh, biblical teaching on the heart. For the heart and what goes into the heart has everything to do with James's entire message. Because it is so very important that we understand the connection between our minds, our experiences, our hearts, and therefore our actions. For if we do not understand how each of these connect, we will fail to understand and apply James's message to our lives. For our minds will interpret our experiences. And the interpretation of our experiences will directly fill and influence our hearts. And our hearts will direct all of our actions. Let me read that one more time. I think it's very important to to see the connection. For our minds will interpret our experiences. And the interpretation of our experiences, the things that we go through will directly fill and influence our hearts. And our hearts will then direct all of our actions. In a more simplified sense, our daily behaviors or our actions, the things that we actually do each day, directly come out of the culmination of what is stored or what we have worked to store within our hearts. So we have to keep this biblical theology of the heart closely in mind as we look at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, because it's going to tell us a lot more of the depth of what's going on uh, in a person's mind and in their heart when it comes to action. And briefly recapping James chapter 1, verses 18, remember that the first 18 verses are all connected under one section of writing under this theme of how we, the church, are to face trials. In verses 2 through 4, which I covered in my first sermon, we saw that James was teaching us how we are to, quote, consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Uh, James here was providing for the people of God a proper worldview uh, perspective or a proper interpretation, how we're to interpret our experiences, um, and this that we should adopt in the midst of our trials and tribulations as we sojourn on this earth. Next in James 1, 5 through 8, which is what my second sermon covered, James goes beyond just a perspective that Christians should consider when facing trials, and he goes deeper into explaining how believers can go about attaining such perspective. And he says it is through wisdom, more specifically the wisdom of God. 
But this wisdom must be asked for, according to James, and it must be received in faith. For James tells us that to ask for such wisdom and then respond in doubt, so to experience something, to think about it, and to think I'm going to ask God for wisdom, but then to really doubt and, and not really believe you'll receive that wisdom, then God's response to us is that we will not receive that wisdom for we are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1, 6-7. Then in James 1, 9-18, through 18, which is what my third sermon covered, we were able to break down these verses into three different sections. In verses 9 through 12, James gave a more direct and specific example of the type of trial that many in the church at that time were enduring. In these verses, James contrasts and explains the differences between the rich, quote, and the poor, quote, of the time, warning the rich while at the same time encouraging the poor, and he does this in a very contrasting way. In verses 13 through 15, James gave clarification to the topic of, quote, temptations that believers often face in the midst of their trials, explaining that sin is what tempts us during trying times, not the Lord. In verse 16 through 18, James gives a sort of conclusion on the section of facing trials as he gives his audience theological insight into the role of God in the midst of his people's trials and tribulations in this life, encouraging the people of God to remain positive and optimistic in the midst of their hardships. And so today, in James 1, 19 through 25, after completing his section on how believers are to face trials, James continues to build upon this theme and further directing and exhorting God's people on how they should respond in light of what he taught in verses 2 through 18. In other words, he gives the setting, he gives the backdrop We're all going through trials. We all experience it. Here's some things to do. The rest of his book is the direct application of that knowledge, knowing that we're going through trials. Because we have to remember that the majority of the book of James focuses on practical application on what believers are to do in light of the various trials that they endure. Thus, James is largely a responsive book as he exhorts the reader to action through his Poseidon type of teaching, contrasting the people of God Contrasting with how the world responds versus how the church of God ought to respond in the difficulties faced in this life. He's pitting the two together. This is how the world would respond, but this is how you, the church, should respond. And it should look starkly different. In Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Starting in verse 19, James tells his readers to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This common adage of the time, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, was a proverbial saying that would have been very well known to God's people at the time. You could also see several places in the Proverbs where this was derived from. Proverbs 10, 19, 13, 3, 16, 32, 17, 28, and even 29, 20. We also see that this trifold phrase outlines a large portion of the rest of James's message. In other words, James is making a very big point. He's, he's setting the stage by using this proverbial phrase and giving us a foreshadowing for what the rest of his book is going to be based on. Later in James 2, 14 through 26, we see that um, he further addresses the believer's need to put their faith into action. He will cover it in more detail. In, 13 through, or in 3, 1 through 12, we see James further address the believer's need to, quote, tame the tongue and to be cautious in their speech, which he alludes to now. And in 4, 1 through 12, James further addresses the believer's need to avoid the evils of this world, namely not acting in anger as the world does. In other words, he will address each one of these in more detail throughout his book. And so as we begin to near the conclusion of the first chapter of James, we have before us a fairly complete structural overview of James's entire message. In other words, James has now set the stage for what his whole book really is all about. James wants the flock, the people of God, to understand their trials correctly. Since we all endure trials of various kinds, James knows that we all can relate to this, all people throughout all ages. And so he begins verse 19 with these words, Know this then, my brother, as he transitions into making this practical application. I used to think, church, that this verse, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, 
mainly applied to how we as believers should act toward one another. It's a very common verse. Believers, non-believers, most people are very familiar with this. And there's great insight, there's great wisdom that's found in it. It's most certainly true that as believers we should, in fact, be quick to listen. We should be slow to speak. And we should be slow to anger. It's a general rule of conduct. But as we have seen, James almost always has a contrasting and deeper message in his writings. This phrase, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, becomes James's new foundation. Before the foundation was trials of various kinds. Now the foundation is how do we respond to those trials of various kinds. And he uses this trifold phrase to set that foundation. So the flow of James's message, if we were to break it down to a very simplified form, and this is very simplified, would go something like this. Try to follow along carefully uh, in this uh, connected reasoning theme here. Consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that your trials are working in you a greater good through the sovereign will of the Lord. If we lack wisdom in our trials, we should ask God, but we must ask in faith. And stay humble and avoid tempta- uh, temptation. And remember that when you are tempted, don't blame God for your temptations. Blame sin. For God is perfect and is working all things for good in his people. Therefore, therefore, verse 19 Know this, my beloved brothers, we should be quick to hear, primarily to hearing the word of God, slow to speak, primarily in our response to God, and slow to become angry, primarily in responding to God's sovereign will for our lives. The remainder of James's epistle will, in one way or another, relate back to one of these previously mentioned points. And so we should continue to keep this theme, the trials that we endure, in the forefronts of our mind as we look to properly understand and apply James's word, which, again, is not hard. James is a relatively easy book to preach on because uh, it applies to everybody all of the time. Uh, the trials of various kinds are always going on. It seems even much more so, uh, even today, anniversary of 9-11, the recent fires, and it's just so amazing that God's word has so much in the midst of what we experience. And so don't miss what James is saying in the deeper part of his message today. So as we look more closely at verses 19 through 25, we see that this portion of Scripture, these verses can be broken down really into two relatively simple sections. Verses 19 through 21 emphasize the need to properly hear and respond to the Word of God. So to hear it quickly, to respond to it carefully, while verse 22 through 25 emphasize the need for believers to actually do or to act upon the word of God. In chapter 1, 19, James explains to his readers that just as the servant should be quick to hear his master's voice, or a mother would be quick to respond to her baby's smallest cry, so too should the believer be quick to hear and respond what God has to say to them in his word. This is why James states that we should be slow to speak, the context primarily being in our response to God. Though the practical message of being careful in our speech in general was certainly in the mind of James, this was not James's main point in referring to this proverb. As we've previously seen, James has the unique ability to teach on two topics all within the same phrase in order to bring about a much larger and impactful teaching. In other words, people in general, should be quick to listen and should be slow to speak. This is a good general rule. But more importantly, God's people, in the context of their trials of this life, must be quick to listen to God's word and slow and thoughtful in their response. James was using practical teaching to emphasize a much deeper theological and spiritual teaching. So as we go along with James's ability to take that which is practical and convert it into that which is much deeper and more spiritual, let's consider for a moment, what does a good listener do? Right, let's follow along with James's reasoning and think, what does a good listener do? Try to think in your mind. Every one of you, church, think in your mind. What does a good listener do? Think of someone who is a good listener. Think, why are they a good listener? What do they do that makes them such a good listener? Well, I can tell you with pretty good certainty two traits that this person likely has. One, they are quick and intentional to hear you. 
In other words, they listen. And two, they are slow and thoughtful to respond, right? Pretty simple. When you talk, they're actually listening. And when they say something, it's not as if, you know, they're just blurting off the first thing that comes to mind. They're thoughtful in their response. Now, in contrast, think of someone who is a bad listener. What do they do? You probably have a lot more examples of bad listeners come to your mind than you do of that of good listeners. I think that, as a general rule, there's probably more bad listeners in this world than there are good. And try not to look at anyone next to you or make eye contact or (laughs) nudge them with your elbow at this point. That probably would not be very appropriate. I don't know if you're being very um, slow in your response in doing that. But what is it that a bad listener does? Think about it. What is it that a person does that makes them such a bad listener? Again, let me tell you. I can tell you with pretty good certainty. A bad listener will act like they're listening, right? They're acting like it. They kind of have that that blank gaze. And why are they gazing? Because really what they're doing in their mind is they're only being quiet for a moment as they are fully immersed in their own thoughts on what they want to say in response to you. you. Have you seen that look? Kind of deer in the headlights? You're trying to talk to the person and really all they're thinking about is how they can kind of throw another one back at you. They're not hearing you. They're just being quiet because all they're thinking about is what they want to say to you. They're giving little attention to what you are really trying to say to them. They merely roll right over your words because they have their own point to make, right? They're not concerned about what you're saying. They are being very slow to listen, if listening at all, and they're being very quick to respond. And what's the outcome of this full progression of this proverb if we follow it through? It's that a wise person who's careful to hear and slow to respond will also be slow to anger in their response. Because when we are slow to listen to others and hasty in our speech, what does this often lead to? Well, to those of you who are married, this is probably not difficult to see, for you know all too well that when two people, especially a husband and a wife, try to communicate with slow listening and hasty and or reactionary responses, both often come away. How do they come away, church? Happy? Satisfied? No, it's often frustrated. It's often irritable. And we could even use the word here, angry. But when one is quick and intent to listen, they are careful. And they are slow and thoughtful to respond. This often leads to a decrease of anger. For there is much wisdom in such a response. This is pretty good and practical advice, right? You just walked away with a good communication lesson that you can directly apply as we go out from, uh, from, from church today. But when we look at how practical and helpful this simple Proverbs uh, proverb is in our, in our lives, we, we directly see. It, it makes so much sense. It's so simple. But now, this is where James gets really crafty with it. Think about this proverb in terms of James's deeper theological teaching. Let me again walk you through his theological flow of thought using slightly different phrases with connected verses. I'm, I want to do a brief overview, but I'm going to connect it a little bit differently with, with scripture references, okay? In this world, you will have trials, verse 2. But God is using these trials to perfect you, verses 3 through 4. This is often difficult to understand, so ask God for wisdom, but be sure that you trust and do not doubt, verses 5 through 8. Because you are blessed when you remain steadfast in your faith, verse 12. And remember, when you are tempted because of your trials, it is not God tempting you. It, in fact, is sin, verses 13 through 15. So do not be deceived. God is perfect. God is perfect in all that he does and allows, including all that he does and allows in your life. Verses 16 through 18. Therefore, you should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You see how the context just perfectly fits James's picture? You see how this phrase you were probably familiar with before takes on a different meaning when you look at it this way? James has something so much more than just basic communication advice. Though it's good communication advice. He's talking about our communication and our relationship to the God of this universe. Here James not only tells us to listen to this proverb in a practical sense, 
He specifically uses this proverb in his Poseidian way, turning the attention away from the outward action of anger to the inward anger that we can sometimes develop in our frustrations with God. Remember, the context of these verses is how Christians are to respond to trials in this life. James here warns us not to be angry at God and His word or His will, because it reveals our sin and it challenges our behavior and values, especially in the midst of our trials and tribulations. For the anger of man, verse 20, does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, James's goal is to teach his audience how God is using their various and at times seemingly random trials in order in their lives in order to produce in us the righteousness of God. And when through our trials and tribulations we become bitter or we become frustrated and despondent to the word of God, then we often become angry. More specifically, angry at God. And thus, we walk in the way of the world and not in the way of God. Our hearts become filled with anger, hence the filthiness and wickedness James says we need to rid ourselves of in verse 21. It is so interesting. And I've lived long enough to experience this in my own life, that when I come across people who are not believers, I have come across very, very few true atheists. Very, very few. I'm not saying there aren't any. There are very few people who flat out just don't believe in God. As I talk and I listen to people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, it's not that they're it's not that they don't believe in God. You probably already know the answer. What is it that most people are when it comes to God? They are angry. They are angry at God. You can't be angry at something you don't believe in, right? You can be angry at a person, but you can't just assume that person no longer exists. You, you have anger towards that person. And what is it that they're angry at God about, church? Circumstances in their life. If God was the God of the Bible, He wouldn't have done this. God of the Bible can't function that way. How pompous, right? How prideful and arrogant that the person steps up and they say, the one who created this universe and all that exists. Let me tell you how you were supposed to do it. Let me tell you how values really work. Their anger is what burns towards God. It's not that they don't believe. It's that they struggle with anger and, and, and bitterness. This is exactly what James is getting to the heart of. For the world will respond to trials and tribulations in anger. This is often what pushes people away from God. Most children are very open to the idea of God, teenagers much less because of how much it confines, you know, rains on their parade, they want to be free, they don't even understand what freedom is, and as they get older they experience things, and they say, yeah, God can't exist, a good God wouldn't allow those things in a person's life. They question the goodness of God. And so they respond with sin, bitterness, and ungodliness. But we, we His people, we know better. This is what James is telling us, for we are to consider our struggles as what? As joy. We're to consider them as joy, not as, as a good thought or a good idea. We're not to consider them as, as, as a good emotion. We're to consider them as joy, for we know that they're producing in us something better that we cannot even comprehend. For it is God who works in you, Philippians 2.13 says, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Wow, this is a profound and relevant message for every one of us to hear. What a difference it makes, brothers and sisters, to walk through this life knowing that the Lord will be faithful in all that he has promised. Therefore, as James says in verse 21, we are to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Our only hope in being rescued from the evil that surrounds us while we sojourn through this world and awaiting the full consummation of all things is to turn from our sin and receive the word of God which is able to save our souls. That which so many people turn away from out of the sovereign will of the Lord and the Lord allows them to turn from their own choice away from that sin is the very thing that they needed to save them from the sins that they have experienced. All, all sin and suffering in this life, brothers and sisters, comes from sin illness, death, destruction, in some ways the, the, the fires that are there, all, all trials that we go through 
are, are an outpouring, some form, effect of sin. And we have to understand these things. We have to understand that God is still working in the midst of these things to rescue us from that very thing. The very thing that could save a person is the very thing that they turn to reject. Is this not, brothers and sisters, as we look at it this way, the gospel? Isn't this the gospel? What does an unbeliever need to hear as they walk blindly through this world, enduring uh, their effects of sin? That they must turn from their sin. They must receive the word of God and find salvation and rescuing for their souls. This life is not random and God is working in all things, even if we don't see it. What do we need to hear, church, as the church of God, when we encounter trials of various kinds in this world, when we become frustrated or even angry at God and struggle to walk as we should, questioning why God would do certain things? According to James, we need the same message. Turn from your sin, return to the implanted word within you, for it is the salvation of your soul. The gospel, brothers and sisters, never becomes old. The gospel brings us to Christ. The gospel sustains us in Christ. And the gospel will lead us home to the arms of our Savior as we sojourn and endure the various trials of this life. And so with this fresh insight, this fresh insight that comes from this proverbial saying in our minds, what does James tell us that the Christian should do in light of this knowledge. He tells us in light of our salvation that we must then be doers of the word. James tells us in verse 22 that it's not enough to just hear the word. We must actually do what it says. According to James, it's not the hearing of the word that brings the blessings that he describes. It's the application and doing of the word that brings this blessing. This is a point that you find in scripture. It's often not the words When the blessing is there, there's action that needs to follow, which we will see. For the word, brothers and sisters, always, always has application. Take, for example, the verse Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Again, very well-known verse. I want to walk you through it in light of what James is teaching. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 states this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This verse does not say, it does not say, and we must be careful, church, to not read Scripture this way, because I have sat in front of many of people that read Scripture this way, and they're frustrated, and they're bitter, and they're broken because they had the wrong worldview. They had the wrong understanding of what Scripture was teaching. And what it says is that your anxieties will not be reduced if you simply read this verse. Okay? There is a command. And commands in Scripture often consist of three parts, if you were to break them down. There is a what, there is a how, there is a why. A what, a how, and a why. And so we see Paul give each of these in this section of Scripture. What are we to do? We're to be anxious for nothing. How are we to do it? How are we to do that? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And why? What is the outcome of doing this, of actually carrying this out? So that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. If we want to be truly anxious for nothing, it's amazing how often I use this verse especially to those who are struggling, who are anxious. And I'll say this verse, and they say, that's great, that's great. I got that on my fridge. You know, it's a great verse. Well, what are you doing? I read the verse. Well, what are you you doing? You know, there's a command. What are you to do? What are you to do in this? Right? You're to be anxious for nothing. How are you to carry that out? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Are you bringing those anxieties before the Lord and pleading your case with Him daily as those anxieties come? Because that's what it's telling you to do. We could even go on to Philippians 4, 8 through 9 and see this same uh, structure uh, again as we see uh, in verse 8. Verse 8. Verse 8 and 9. Paul says this, Finally, brothers... 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So what's the what? The what is that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. How are you to do it? You're to think upon those things. Why? So that the peace of God will be with you. Our thoughts have consequences. It's how I started this sermon today. And we have to be careful with the things of the way that we think. You cannot just think in a a highly negative way and, and, and always be assuming certain things in your mind and expect that your mind is going to have the outcome of this, the peace of God. Analyze your own thoughts, brothers and sisters. Where are your thoughts? Is the peace of God not within, with you? Then, then you're not being obedient to this. The Lord is faithful. I believe His Word. I, I'm not going to believe a person who says, Oh, I, I've tried doing that. It didn't work. Pretty sure that the Word is going to trump your experiences. You're simply not doing that which the Word has called you clearly to do because you're reading these verses in a way that you think if you simply read them, they'll just somehow, you know, I I teach. I teach high school. I teach college. And I think sometimes some of my students just kind of like open the book hoping that it just kind of just goes into their mind. You have to work hard. There is application in the things that you have to do. So if you're anxious, church, have you failed as a believer? Of course not. Or if you do not think upon the proper things and you struggle deeply with thinking, have you lost your salvation again? Of course not. But to hear these things and to fail to actually do what is taught, failing to pray your anxieties to the Lord and failing to think upon the things of the Lord, instead thinking upon the things that are contrary to the Lord. We can't think upon the things that are contrary to the word. The word doesn't always make sense. How is the Lord going to work all things for good? I can sometimes answer that. Most often I can't. But we must trust in the word. You, 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 you have to stop in your mind of trying to find every reason about why God is wrong and start assuming on the end that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. He said very clearly he is going to work all things for good. Everything. Everything that has happened. I can't fully understand that. I understand it more and more as I grow in my faith. But we have to actually walk as if this is the truth. We have to actually do this. We have to actually live this. Because if we don't, we will certainly miss the blessing that is offered and instead reap the consequence. And what are the consequences of these two verses? If we fail to do what is commanded, namely, we will have an anxious heart and a distorted and negative mind. That's the consequence. Is your heart anxious, brothers or sisters? Is your mind negative and distorted, perhaps you are not doing that which God has called you to do in His Word. Make note, I think it's important though, that these verses in Philippians chapter 4 are a direct exhortation from Paul to the people of God. Not all of Scripture is going to be this easy and clear in its application. They're not going to be as straightforward. We often have to work hard at those applications. Pastor Joe has referred to this before. I've said this before, and I say it again. We have to work hard at applying these things. And you always have to think about, um, I hope that after today, I hope that after what James says so clearly, you look at it and say, what do I need to do in my life? It's one thing, what do I need to think? I heard that, I'm good. According to James, no, you're not. I read that, I'm good. According to James, no, you're not. What do you actually need to do? What do you need to do? There are real actions that should follow the reading and hearing of God's word. This is James's whole point. And as the people of God, we are to respond by doing, by doing what we are told. This is why James tells us in verse 22 that by hearing and not doing, we only deceive ourselves. The example James gives for this self-deception is that of a mirror in verse 23. What is the main purpose for owning a mirror? I would assume... Church, this is an easy one. I would assume that all of us looked in a mirror at least once. At least once. Maybe you have a friend that you're like, do you own a mirror? Um, That's where you can be a friend. That's where you can be a friend. Because we all understand what a mirror does. To be able to see yourself and to see what you look like. And you're able to make yourself look presentable and clean because it's reflecting back to you. A mirror reflects back the reality of our actual visible condition, whether we like what we see or not. The mirror will always tell the truth 
as to our physical appearance. And so as we look into the mirror of God's word, we see ourselves as we really are. Just as it would be a mistake to look at a mirror, see our hair out of place and dirt on our face, and then walk away as if we were presentable, we would only be deceiving ourselves, according to James. To disregard what we look like does not change what we look like. To disregard it doesn't mean that we look any better. The reality remains. Thus, James alludes to several mistakes that the people of God potentially make as they look into the mirror of God's word. First, or mistake number one, they merely only glance at themselves. They do the quick pop a head around a corner, looks decent in this very little lighting perhaps. They do not carefully study themselves as they read the word is the idea. They give a brief glance and they fail to see the detail that a mirror can provide if only they were to use it more carefully. And we, we, we teeter on this practical. We understand that very practically, right? I look into a mirror, pop my head around the corner, and that's, I'm good. You didn't see. You're not able to see what's really going on. This is what the Word of God does. Second, this person forgets what they see. Maybe they look a little bit longer, perhaps. They may look more closely. They may actually recognize how poor their appearance is, but they simply walk away and forget the reality of their true appearance. They simply disregard it. They say, I recognize that does not look good, but I'll just go ahead and put that out of my mind. Which leads to the third potential mistake. The one who does look intently, and they study it, and they see the detail, and they see how misplaced and out of place and and dirty their appearance is. And they simply disregard it with all that knowledge and stuff it down even further as to how poor their physical appearance is. This person fails to obey what the Word tells them to do because they did not give enough attention, care, or concern when they were looking at themselves in the first place. They think that hearing is the same as doing, and it's not. It just, it it isn't. I had to go back through many times in James to make sure that I really understood this. This is big when it comes to the Word of God, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But James is saying to hear it is not enough. You must actually do. To look in a mirror and to do nothing, James tells us, is like reading God's word and to do nothing in response. Church, that's a very piercing, direct, and powerful exhortation that James makes to the people of God. So much so, I wasn't the only one to struggle with this. Many before me have, even the great reformer Martin Luther himself, struggled with this point. Those of you who know church history may know this. Because so much of Luther's theology was based on faith and grace alone, not on the action or obedience of man. But this command to be obedient through action is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is found both in the Old Covenant and the New. For it has always been by grace through faith that God's people have been saved. God has always had a remnant of true Israel throughout all of history. This is why I chose Exodus 24, 3-8 for the Old Testament reading today. Knowing that it would be fresh in your minds from only a few weeks ago that God commands his people and their response is, we will obey. All of ancient Israel is seen as reciting this uh, scripture back to Moses, saying that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. But not all of Israel was true Israel. Not all of Israel was true Israel. Even in ancient Israel, God had a remnant within. For only true Israel, through the grace of Christ, was truly able to mean this statement as they said it, and to actually do it. This is why directly after the people gave this statement, Moses took blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. For Moses, being of true Israel, knew that this was only possible through the power of God. Moses knew that something greater was coming. Moses was looking forward to the Messiah. Because he knew that in him, in this Messiah that had been promised, such obedience would actually be possible. I think it would be helpful to hear what our confession says on this point. And so I want to read to you chapter 8, section 6 from the London Baptist Confession. And listen carefully to these words because it gives good clarity. LBC 8.6 Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation... Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages. 
in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he, meaning Christ, was revealed, and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, bring the same yesterday and today and forever. Moses, being of true Israel, being of the elect of God, received the benefits of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection long before Christ had even come. And Moses knew that obedience to God was only possible through the power and saving grace of God. This is because, church, the following of God's law is an act of obedience, not an act of salvation. It's always been an act of obedience, not an act of salvation. The law was never meant to save, only to show the need for saving. Moses knew this, James knew this, and we must also know this if we are to walk righteously after God in this life. James tells us that our act of obeying God and his word are out of the response of who we now are in Christ. We obey God because we are God's people, not so that we can become God's people. It is our act of loving response to our, to our creator for bringing us the salvation from our sins. When we as God's people hear and do the word of God, we are blessed, as Luke eleven twenty eight states, blessed are they who hear God's word and keep it. To hear God's word and do it brings blessing. To hear it and fail to do it brings consequences. To hear God's word and to do it is what brings blessings. And to hear it and fail to do it brings consequences. It was this way in the Old Testament. And it is this way in the New Testament. Salvation has always been by the grace of God, through Christ, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 9. And so we see that in verses 23 through 24, James uses the picture of God's word as a mirror. A mirror brings clarity to the physical reality of our appearance. And the Bible, likewise, brings clarity to our spiritual condition before God. A mirror shows us what we really look like. And the Bible shows us the truth about ourselves. For this mirror functions as God's law. And the law does in fact condemn. It does in fact condemn. For it reveals our true spiritual condition. And just as one who looks in the mirror and sees unkept hair and a dirty face would immediately see their need to fix that appearance, so too should the one who looks into the law of God see their need to hear and to do and to act upon that word of God. As James says in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But isn't it interesting that James here refers to God's word not as the law, but as the perfect law of liberty? It's pretty contrasting. We often hear of the law as being that which condemns, but here James says this is what will actually free you God's word is and has always been a law because it was given by God for the express purpose of guiding and regulating the conduct of his people. And it is perfect because it is given by God himself. God who is perfect cannot produce anything that is not perfect. But it is the, quote, perfect law of liberty because it gives liberty to those who subject themselves to it and are obedient to its words. Brothers and sisters, to be truly free in this life is to be freed of your sin and to no longer be in bondage of it which means you need to understand the law, you need to apply the law, and you need to act upon the law in your daily lives. James's use of this phrase, perfect law of liberty, makes us realize how very blessed we are to have it. A mere to show us the truth about ourselves, the law shows us who we are. Thus the law becomes the perfect law of liberty. When through Christ we are able to do, through Christ we are able to do what it says. Because the one who does... The one who actually does, gives action to it, is the one who will be blessed in what he does. Verse 25. We're accustomed to defining this word blessed as being happy, but I think that it's better to uh, translate and define this as being fulfilled or fully satisfied in this life. Those who actually do the word of God are able to find fulfillment. People are constantly striving for peace and fulfillment in this life, and no doubt, church, these are troubling and trying days. In people's quest for fulfillment 
in their quest for security, pleasures, possessions, power, experiences, significance, they always at the end of the day are still looking for just a little bit more. One is never happy enough, rich enough, secure enough, satisfied enough, or significant enough. For only God and his word are able to bring such satisfaction. More specifically, only in the hearing and the doing of the word are the people of God able to be truly satisfied and blessed in this life and in the next. And so as we begin to move towards a closing church, I would like to offer you just two points of reflective application. James, this section of James is broken down into two sections, and I have application points for each of those sections, and it's pretty straightforward. Number one, we must be very careful. We must be very careful to have tender, humble, and cultivated hearts in order to hear the word of God. We must be very careful to have tender, humble, and cultivated hearts in order to hear the word of God. Brothers and sisters, James tells us to receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness. It is God alone who is able to plant the word into the heart, but we must receive it, and this receiving must be done by a heart that is prepared. For if your heart is not prepared to hear the word, how in the world are you going to be able to receive the word? So I ask you, what are you doing to receive the word that the Lord has implanted in you? For he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What are you doing as God is bringing that about in your life? What are you doing daily? How are you interacting and engaging with the world around you? How are you living out your faith in this increasingly secularized culture? What are you spending your time doing? Are you coming each Lord's Day ready and prepared to hear the word? Because where your treasure is... There your heart is also. Church, if you're struggling in any way in your faith right now, the very first question I would hope you would ask yourself is, how have I been cultivating my heart in order to hear and receive the word of God? Is God not responding to you? Perhaps your heart is too hardened for God to be able to work in it. And it is only by his grace that it will be softened. Remember, James has already told us that God does not tempt us to sin. It is our own flesh that tempts us. And I can say with great certainty that if you are struggling in your walk with God, then somewhere within your heart is buried frustration, bitterness, or perhaps even angry towards the God of this universe. In which case, Peter, in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, gives us words that we need to hear. In fact, they're words that all of us need to hear. Listen carefully to Peter. In chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting, listen now, church, casting all of your anxieties on him. There it is again, something we need to do. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, are you seeing the connection? These are the same words of James. In this world, you will suffer. You will have a hard time. What are you doing in the midst of that? Is your heart growing cold and despondent to God? Or are you bringing your anxieties to Him? There's something we have to do. Too many people are waiting for, I don't know what it is. I've just learned over the years to call it the force. I don't feel like praying. I don't, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like going to church. I'm not really sure what it is that you're listening to that. Perhaps it's something bad you ate the night before. But the Bible is not saying, what do you feel like? It is saying, you must do these things for the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to devour. And if you are sitting there isolating yourself, not using the spirit, not using the sword of the spirit, not utilizing the armor that scripture tells you to do, how do you think you're going to fare in that battle? And then we wonder the states that we're in. We wonder the states that we're in. And so, may we be faithful to, quote, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 
as James tells us. And may we be ever so careful to keep a clean and pure heart daily, weekly, continuously, so that we will be able to properly receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Point number two. Point number two. When we receive the word of God, as we come and we receive it, we must be careful and diligent to do it. When we receive the word of God, we must be careful and diligent to do it. Believers, it's not enough to just hear the word of God. Strong statement, I know, but it's not. Though daily Bible reading and in-depth scripture study is a good start, too many Christians equate Bible reading and theological knowledge as a gauge for measuring their faith. According to James, this is very, very false, which we'll see. Again, you should study the word, of course. Hear me carefully. You should study it consistently. But to hear the word and then fail to do it, James gives us an image of that. It's like you looked at yourself in the mirror and you walked away and you forgot what you looked like. You walked away and simply forgot what you looked like. When Scripture commands the people of God to act, it is not so that we can make a bumper sticker and put it on our car along with our other stickers that display our modern convictions. There is something that is commanding. There is something in your life that should be different. There is something you should do. Remember, the blessing that James alludes to in verse 25 speaks of the one who does the word, not just hears it. It's not enough, church, to just know the word. As James will tell us later in chapter 219 of his book, you believe that the God is one, and you do well, but even the demons believe this and shudder. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Think about that. You know the word of God. Great. You come to church. You grow up. Great. Even the demons know that. As, as I preach, as the word is put out, the demons hear it too. They know it too. What has that done for them? For the Christian is to take these things and to apply them in their lives. Even an unbeliever can know the word, but a true man or woman of God will do the word. Brothers and sisters, to bring a conclusion to this point, simply ask yourself the question, who do you think is more godly and pleasing in the eyes of our Lord? The one who studies to great lengths and knows the great depths of theology, but does little in acting out and living out their faith? Or the one who knows little, but they know the gospel, but they are careful and diligent to live out the word of God in their life every day? I think the answer to that question is pretty simple. Pretty simple. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Thus you will recognize them by the great lengths of theology, by their library, by the amount of studies or degrees they've completed. No, you will know them by the fruits in their life because they will actually live out this word. Theology matters, brothers and sisters. Obviously, it matters greatly. I'm very aware, the audience that I speak to, I'm very aware of our denomination, but we must heed the words of James. We must know our theology, for it matters deeply. But as we will see in the next sermon, good theology leads to godly action. Good theology leads to godly action. Good theology leads to action in the life of the believer. We must both be hearers of the word and through loving obedience also be doers of the word. And so as we conclude, I will ask you, what does the word of God reveal to you when you look into it? What is the word of God telling you? What are you hearing from the Lord? Does it tell you that your prayer life is not what it ought to be? Well, then what are you going to do? Are you bringing your anxieties to the Lord in prayer as you are commanded? Does it tell you that you have bitterness and resentment toward a brother or sister in Christ in your heart? Does it tell you that you are not as diligent as you should be about your study of the word, hearing of the word, application of the word, to receive the word? What then are you going to do? Does it tell you that your love for Christ has grown cold? Or does it reveal to you your need to come to Christ and ask for the forgiveness of your sins? I will then ask you one final time, what are you going to do? Work hard, brothers and sisters, at applying the word of God in your life. Be a hearer of God's word, but more importantly, be a doer of God's word. May Christ be our true treasure. May we receive his words with meekness, and may we be faithful to do all that he commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
There's much to pray for, Father. We will continue in other times of praying today, Father. But my prayer is simple. May we hear your word and may we do your word. Thank you for James' James's, uh, unique ability to communicate these truths to us, Father. We hear your word. We need your word. We need to eat and feast upon it daily, weekly, monthly, throughout our lives. But may it transform us, Lord, from the inside out, that we may live out these things and act upon the things and be doers of that which you have called us to do. In the name of Christ we pray.